Hello and welcome to episode number 110 of the Agro Innovations Podcast. All things related and debated in agriculture, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, November 8th, 2010. For this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I am publishing here an interview that I conducted with Dr. Blair Orr of Michigan Technological University, and I got a chance to sit down with Dr. Orr at the Society for American Foresters Conference, which was meeting here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, a couple of weeks back. So I hope that you will enjoy this interview with Dr. Blair Orr. So on this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Dr. Blair Orr. Blair is a professor of forest economics at Michigan Technological University in Houghton, Michigan. He's also the director of MTU's Peace Corps Master's International Program. Blair Orr, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thanks, Frank. It's uh, happy to be here. I'm happy to be in New Mexico and talk to your audience. Okay. What is the Master's International Program? How long has it been around and how many students have you sent overseas now? Um, well, the first, there are, it's a program run in cooperation with Peace Corps. So there are maybe 80 programs around the United States that are master's international programs. At Michigan Tech, we have eight of those 80, and I oversee all eight of them, but I specifically um, run the forestry program. So in the forestry program, I would say we've had about oh, 70 students over the years. Um, overall, we've had about 175 on campus. At any one time, I think there's between 250 to 300 master's international students from all the campuses across the country overseas serving in Peace Corps. So how many have come back from the Peace Corps and are now kind of out in the greater world now? Oh boy, harder question. I'm not sure I keep track of that. I'm just guessing 50 or no, well, 100, over 100 have graduated actually of all the eight programs put together. Okay. So. so through the years and via your constant contact with Peace Corps volunteers around the world, what are some of the patterns you have noticed that are currently going on in third world forestry and agriculture? I think the, the, there are a couple of big trends. That uh, First, uh, a lot of people who are in the United States or Europe or Canada tend to think of forestry as kind of the, those large stretches of trees that are out far away from where they live. But in developing countries, First, when you have a lot of people, if you have kind of a mix of people in forests, they're really intertwined in how they interact. And those vast stretches of forest land, of which there aren't too many left, don't have very high population densities. Um, and then you also have places where people are in desperate need of forests and trees um, because there's such a high population density and forests haven't necessarily been managed due to a lot of different changes that have gone on in developing countries. And so there's this need to think about how we can use trees constructively in a village or a community setting. And I think when I first started as a Peace Corps volunteer a long time ago, people just thought, oh, you just plant trees and everything is going to be okay. And now we know that a lot of it is more working with people. That sometimes the technical side of forestry isn't all that difficult. It's communicating the correct concepts and then working with people who often understand the need for trees and it's a putting your skills together with their skills. And that's maybe the biggest change, that there's a lot more work with local communities. Okay, so you've been doing this for a while now. I guess your, your program has been around for 20 years, is that right? Well, it's going on 20. Okay, so have you noticed that some of these trends are changing? I mean, you're 
always corresponding with these students in the field. Um, are you noticing any changes or, or patterns that are kind of emerging through time? Well, I think one thing is that um, first, um, there's a lot more uh, knowledge out there in developing countries today than there was, say, 20 years ago. And I think a lot of that is just due to the increased communication and um, movement of people that um, you'll, you'll see in many countries, it doesn't matter where you are, somebody will be working in a remote village in Honduras or a remote village in Mali. But there's somebody in that village who has been to France or has been to the United States and, and they communicate back and they send money back and they send mm -hmm. information back. So this migration of people, even inside the country, migration to large cities and back again, has had a profound effect on forestry, on agriculture. Communication has really become so much faster and so much more accessible to many, many people that it's, it's changed maybe not any specific how to plant a tree, but how people think and work in the world. What about technology and access to technology and the use of technology? Um, you know, in, in development, there's a lot of talk of appropriate technologies, but now, I mean, when I was in Bolivia, not many people had cell phones at all in these rural areas. And now I go back and almost every family has a cell phone. What do you see is the impact of that? Well, it hasn't spread. It's something that's really starting as to how you can use that technology at the village level. So I think the thing that people often hear about are, is prices for farm goods. And so if you're working on an agroforestry project, there may be some agricultural commodities that being able to get a good price at the right time is important. But the other thing that's just beginning to happen, and I think, you know, um, at least within Asia, certainly it's being developed in India because there are so many small farmers that have cell phones and have similar problems, but they use the cell phones for extension work, um, that you can dial up an extension agent, and if you've got a very common question, you might even get a canned response back, but you can actually then end up talking to an extension agent, and you pay a small subscription fee in order to do that. But people, because for a small subscription fee, you may get information that's so valuable in terms of increasing crop yields, in terms of reducing uh, damage, ways that you might intercrop to reduce pest damages, for example. And those things have really changed that, it, that communication is faster in terms of dealing with specific problems that farmers have. Now, are these uh, subscription fee models, are they private or are they public? Uh, it varies from place to place. Some are, uh, most of the, the fee ones are primarily private, but there are some public ones that are free in parts of the world. So. Well, that's interesting because most of the extension, quote-unquote, work that I saw in Bolivia was people with agrochemicals going out there and trying to sell their product and telling people which product will kill which fungus or disease. So it seems like this is a, a system where they're actually using information instead of of chemical inputs. Well, but no, that still happens. I mean, there's a fair number of people. There are places in developing countries where large firms are out there, and you know, our model it's it's somewhat similar to the model that happens in parts of farming in the United States, where you need money up front to farm. You go to the bank, you take out a loan. But now there are places where you can work with um, agricultural commodity corporations and and bypass banks in some ways and then you sell your crop and then you get the money you pay back the bank. Well, what's going on in some of these countries is that they're kind of on credit buying the inputs that they need to, say, grow cotton in Zambia. 
And so then they're depending on getting a good price for that cotton later on in order to pay things back. They have to come up with a certain yield. They might even be guaranteed a price in certain cases, but that's a price per unit. And so if you don't hit a large enough unit, if you're not productive enough, you're not going to make enough money to pay this back. Of course, that's always been a problem for farmers is, you know, there's, there's a, such a high risk for farmers everywhere in the world that you're always trying to figure out how to moderate that risk if you can. Well, let's talk about uh, one of the big issues that you uh, know a lot about, and that's the issue of tenure in third world agriculture. What can you tell us about this issue? Um, oh, it's, for forestry in particular, it's a really big problem, and agroforestry. You might have a system in a developing country, for example, where the land is kind of owned by somebody. This is common in Africa. Um, and as long as they keep farming it, then they don't even necessarily have to farm it every year. Their household gets to keep that land. But let's say the household moves away, the land lies fallow for three or four years, then the chief or the village council might reallocate that land to a new household. Well, that's understandable. That's the way people have done it for a long time. Well, where do trees fit into this system? Trees can sometimes nail down permanent land ownership. So you may not be able to get permission to plant a tree, not because people don't want trees, but because they don't want permanent land ownership in this kind of semi-fluid ownership system. So that's an area where tenure and ownership can be a problem. Also, we see problems with tenure and ownership conflict between traditional and modern, where there's traditional ownership and everybody understands all the rights and everything that go with land ownership because it's often not pure private ownership. There's mixed rights to use of the landscape. And then you'll see an agency come in, a government agency, and all of a sudden they are saying, okay, we need formal, legal, private ownership. And that throws all these traditional systems out of kilter when they do that. We're also seeing something even on a bigger level um, where in the past there was not large agribusiness in many developing countries. In parts of Central and South America, you may have seen very um, ownership patterns where large amounts of land were owned by single individuals, but that wasn't corporate ownership. And now we're seeing even in some cases, um, for example, Chinese, China through Chinese sometimes parastatal organizations purchasing or trying to purchase, not always able to, large tracts of land. Why? They have to feed their country back home. So one way to do that is to secure land ownership. We're seeing um, in parts of Brazil, parts of Paraguay, uh, a shift to much more larger agribusiness in some areas. You know, people talk about, oh, what a, you know, there's such a problem with people running into the Amazon and settling at all these little peasant farmers, five to ten hectares at a time. Well, if you were to divide up some of those large agribusiness plots, nobody would ever have to go into the Amazon. So there's just this ownership issues out there. Who owns what? How is it owned? Who has the authority to give out the land ownership? And it's always so unsettled in this changing world that it makes it hard to go in and do development work sometimes if Nobody even knows who owns the land and whether you can plant trees. Mm -hmm. So tenure, oh, it remains a big problem. Well, I've seen cases where smallholder farmers have clear tenure to the land. It's documented. It's, recommended, it's uh, recognized by the state according to laws and legal traditions or, or even um, indigenous traditions. 
but a lot of these lands are eroded and very degraded and people are very reluctant to put any investment in in those types of situations. What are your thoughts on uh, recovering eroded and degraded lands? Well, we've done that in the United States in the 30s. And when we did it here, we realized that there was a public good to having good farmland, good reduced erosion on rangelands. And so government programs were set up. Sometimes they were on a cost-share basis. Sometimes the government would just come in and put in structures. There's some massive structures throughout the Midwest. They were put in on individual farms where places where there were gullies that you could have put a semi in are now good farmland. So once land hits a certain point, it's almost um, an investment trap. You, you can't ever recover the value of rebuilding that land no matter how you farm it. And so you have to look at it as a national good. Do you want that farmland running down into the watersheds, ruining the watersheds? A lot of cases, countries have built dams, and those dams silt up, right? And, you know, they were built on an expected life, expectant, you know, life expectancy of, say, 50 years, and all of a sudden you, they silt up in 20. Well, you know, you've lost money on your farmland and on your hydroelectric power, whatever other purposes that dam may have held. So there's a lot of public good to land reclamation. But again, developing countries, do they have the resources? Do they have the personnel? Do they have the money to be able to go out and do those kinds of things? That, you know, your comment that small farmers don't want to undertake recovering it, well, for them, many times, that's a reasonable decision. It takes a lot of money or labor to do it. And if you want that to be recovered, you have to look at it as a public good. Well, you teach a class called Trees and Agricultural Systems. Essentially, this is a class about agroforestry. Talk about some of the themes in this class. Uh, well, even though it's Trees and Agricultural Systems, we spend a lot of time just on basic soil information. Soils, third world countries, um, the problems are often a bit different than we might see in uh, temperate climates. So we have to talk about um, how we talk a lot about, um, or not necessarily organic farming, but what I would call kind of close to organic farming. You know, one of the, your comments was, oh, the land's in bad shape. Well, sometimes if you had gotten to that land 50 years ago and put in an ag system that you could be maybe totally organic with no pesticides and no fertilizers from the outside, but a lot of tropical soils are low in nitrogen. They've been made worse, and you can only recover so much of that if you are trying to use nitrogen-fixing crops. If you've lost the top of your topsoil, mm -hmm. you might have to touch it up with nitrogen or something like that just to get it going. So we, but we talk a lot about kind of low-input systems is a phrase that you sometimes hear in agriculture. And those low-input systems are designed to kind of build uh, farm systems, again, where farmers may have been subsistence farmers, but they're not subsistence farmers anymore. So we teach that as well, that yes, you want to be able to feed your household off the farm, but these days people are trying to get school fees to send their children to school, they're trying to clothe families, they've got medical expenses, and all of those things mean that you need to generate cash off of your farm as well. So you need this blend of cash crops and subsistence crops. So we're talking about mixed farming systems. Well, the book that you used for this class was written by Willem Beats, who has quite a lot to say about many of these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and some of its major themes? Oh, it's, a, it's like a comprehensive how-to farm in the tropics with smallholders. And it covers some of the things we've already discussed, low-input systems, 
uh, nutrient cycling, erosion, what to do about erosion. But Beats also has the ability to look at the big system. So he'll talk about problems with development agencies, problems with government agencies, and some, how those can be roadblocks to good development. Um, farmers' attitudes and why those attitudes might develop. So that it's a book that covers, you know, it says smallholder agriculture in the tropics, but it's, it's really kind of a very comprehensive look at agriculture, not just one little farm and how do you make it work, but what is a farmer facing in terms of constraints and what can you do about those constraints? What constraints might be things beyond your control? Corruption in a, at the national level. Those are things that somebody, most people working in agriculture will never be able to solve, but you have to work around them. And so you have to be aware of them if you're working in the field. This book was written, well, I think over 20 years ago now, and um, I wonder if there's anything that you think that kind of needs to be updated about that book or, or just things that have happened or changed since the book was written. Well, I think, you know, all the themes in the book are, are still relevant, and so they're a good starting point for what you might think about. But sometimes you'll look at them and the graph will end in 1992 or something like that. So, you know, you can look at them, and sometimes you can even see that his projections are off as to what's going to happen. Um, so I think, you know, there's some things that could be updated there. Um, I don't think um, the book really captures one of the things I've talked about, which is migration and information flow, that that's a, a big change that is so recent that the book really doesn't touch on it. Um, NGOs were around then and they were starting to reach some prominence, but I think that they've become much more important in the general scheme of things. And so when the book talks about NGOs, it's often talking about kind of the larger multinational ones and what they might be doing. Um, and I think now we have a lot of local small NGOs that function quite differently and, um, and are important in agriculture. Uh, well, mixed farm systems are clearly a way to distribute risk and develop multiple streams of income, but in the world of international development, they are a tough sell, partly maybe because the focus is on profit and efficiency instead of risk management. What are your thoughts? I think that's part of it, but also you, in development you tend to get experts, you tend to get trendy ideas. Um, I mean, it goes a long, back a long, long time, but I can remember when I was, my first job working overseas was as a Peace Corps volunteer in Lesotho, and they were being told, oh, here's this wonderful thing that you can do, you can plant this tree, and it's marvelous tree, used all over the tropics, it turns out that it was, wasn't frost tolerant. And where we were in the mountains of Lesotho, it snowed most winters. And there was no way this tree was going to grow. So people push one kind of wonder idea sometimes, and that's a problem. I mean, these days we see it with things like biochar. That lots, and there's nothing wrong with biochar in the right setting, but it requires some labor to make it. It requires having enough biomass out there. There's a lot of things, ingredients, that go into making it successful. And it's being pushed sometimes in dry areas where people are already stressed on labor and stressed on uh, biomass and they have other uses for it. So there are other ways to get biomass and organic matter that functions, maybe not exactly the same way, but into the soil. And the, the trick is to kind of look and say, what are we trying to do with a farmer? And you, so you're not trying to say, oh, here's biochar. You're trying to look at the farmer and say, what is the farmer doing right now? What does a farmer think the problems are? What do you think the problems are? 
Do you agree on it? If you do, you're in good shape. If you don't, you've got to think about why your idea might be useful to talk with the farmer about or why the farmer is picking something else out as a key barrier to their continued success. And you pick a few of those things to work on, probably the short-term, high-impact ones. But you're trying to start with a farmer's system and move it one step at a time toward that mixed farming system. And so that means that if a farmer is at point A, mixed farming might be at point L. And so you've got a lot of steps to go through to get out there. It might take decades to get there. And it, so it takes this vision of working with each farmer and what that farmer has already as a resource. And even in one village, you can have rich farmers, poor farmers, farmers with a lot of land, farmers with a little land, farmers with a lot of labor, farmers with a little labor. All those things, you put it together, each farmer has their own kind of sets of needs. And so when you get big development agencies coming in, they want to drop one thing in there. And one thing isn't what moves you all the way out to Point L. It's a lot of little tiny steps and patience that get you there. And a lot of times it's not big money. And development agencies sometimes are coming with too much money to spend, that if they could split it up into little projects, farmer by farmer, they'd be better off. Well, you, one of your focuses through the years has been economics. and. Uh, it seems like economics in some ways has been corrupted by this overemphasis on profits and this underemphasis on, on risk management. And risk management is such an important component to agricultural systems. Um, I don't know, do you have anything else to say about that? Well, I think, you know, economics and risk management do go together in the United States. We see that with things like crop insurance. Um, we see that with government programs that step in at certain times. So economics and risk management do go together, and farmers in the United States do sacrifice those wildly successful, profitable years when they take out certain types of purchasing of futures, for example. That may lock in a profit, but lock it in, in such a way that they can't gain from a wildly good year. Um, so those kind of financial instruments aren't yet really available to farmers, but we're seeing in some cases, certain types of insurance reach small farmers in developing countries and places. It's new, it's certainly not widespread, but it is an economic way of working on risk management. And of course, the other way to have deal with risk management is to make sure that you haven't sacrificed your subsistence types of farming, that you've diversified your subsistence types of farming, so that the market really doesn't affect you as much. So that's one way that farmers can manage risk is diversification, subsistence management. There are cases where farmers manage risk just by setting up cooperatives, which is not an easy thing to do. But in some communities, it's very successful. But it's not a universal solution. What strategies are most effective in changing the behaviors of smallholder farmers? Um, boy, that's a tough question because it varies so much from farmer to farmer. But I'd say just working with them and listening to them and being patient. that. Uh, and, and not trying to do big, wonderful things all at once, but again, as I've said, small steps. Do lots of little small steps and work with them. And when you're working with them and they see that you're kind of invested in them, not in a financial sense, but sometimes in a very emotional sense, then they know that you're on their side. It's a level of trust that is involved between the person working with the farmer and the farmer. So all those things go into kind of motivating farmers. Sometimes farmers have just been beaten down by three or four bad years in a row, and, and that's hard to overcome for anybody. 
what strategies are least effective? Oh boy, um, just walking in and trying to do a development project in a short amount of time, dumping a lot of money on a project. I mean, if there's another trend that's kind of happened over the years, it's that people have gone in and they've dumped in so much money in development that farmers now sometimes are not motivated or entire communities are expecting handouts. Um, you know, oh, if you want me to come to this meeting um, about farming, then I need lunch paid for and a per diem. Well, you know, that becomes a motivation. You've got to provide the fertilizer. You've got to do something. And so if you had gone in and worked with farmers and set up a system where maybe there's a lot more of an organic input into the farming system and just a little touch-up fertilizer now and then, well, that's something that's affordable to a farmer. And so, and it's something that can be done at a small, on a small financial level. But as long as you've got a big development agency coming in, they want to bring in big tractors and lots of fertilizer and outside experts that are only there for a short amount of time but are expensive and all those things don't work. Um, let's talk about a specific country that's been in the news lately, uh, Haiti. They just got through a ter terrible earthquake and now there's talk of a cholera outbreak there. Completely deforested country. Um, is there any hope for a country like this? Right. You know, there is, but I think Haiti has a, a long political history that's going to make it difficult that a lot of donor agencies are afraid to even go in and work there because they, they're afraid that they'll waste so much money in terms of corruption and, and getting things started. Um, right now, it's pretty clear. It's interesting. We're talking at the Society of American Foresters Convention because there's been talk here about how, how do we work on reforestation in Haiti. And I think a lot of people know the technical answers on how to grow a nursery mm -hmm. and some of the problems even with termites and wood. And mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, if we had an ideal world, you couldn't go in and just rebuild things there and start tree nurseries. But you can look at the Dominican Republic on the other side of the island and see that it's possible to have trees and farm systems and agricultural and forestry extension work. So, and it's, you know, the dividing line is a political one. So the first thing that has to happen in Haiti is some kind of political reconstruction. But can you farm? Well, I think what is always going to happen in developing countries, just as has happened in the U.S., we see a decline in the number of people in the countryside. And so that takes pressure, to some extent, off of some of the resources out there. Um, and if you have enough pressure on the landscape but not too much, then the land becomes valuable, right? It's somewhat scarce, so it's got some value. And when it's valuable, people take care of it. There are parts of Kenya, for example, where nobody stepped in with an agricultural policy, but land management improved dramatically when there is a more, much more secure tenure, which Haiti certainly doesn't have, mm -hmm. and when there was um, enough pressure on the landscape that farmers felt that if they invested in it, they'd be able to get a return on their investment. So secure tenure and and the ability to go out and farm in markets. And I think Haiti has, will never probably have problems with markets. It's a densely populated area. So if you had a good, you know, mixed farming, probably with a heavy vegetable emphasis in there, you'd have markets for those vegetables in the big cities all over the place. So this the situation says that it, it ought to work, and to some extent, politics are the reason it doesn't. 
Well, when I was in the Dominican Republic in 2004, uh, one of the uh, issues in the Dominican Republic was that there was no distributed network of transportation to move the vegetables around. Right. So the Dominican Republic was actually importing vegetables, even though you have all these farmers who want to sell vegetables to right. people. Um, so I wonder if you could comment on that in a place like Haiti or the Dominican Republic. Not just Haiti and the Dominican Republic, but almost anywhere you go, you need good infrastructure, you need good storage facilities. The amount of grain that's lost in developing countries due to poor storage, poor transportation, just incredible. In some countries, it's a quarter of the grain yield in the nation. So you can imagine if grain, which stores pretty well, is having trouble moving around, the problems that you have with vegetables. But then there are cases where even in fairly remote areas, small co-ops have been set up. There's a couple cases in Ghana that I know of in the north of the country. So that's bad transportation up there. Well, they've worked just very much on localized markets for tomatoes, and they've been quite successful because they were able to come together, and that meant that not it wasn't every farmer trying to get his or her little basket of tomatoes to, to market. It was much, a much more efficient method of doing it. And uh, that's a case where a cooperative really did work very effectively. Oddly enough, some of those grew out of tree nurseries. That tree nursery got going, people started working together, and then nobody would have predicted that they would have gone into purchasing peanuts and storing them and then into growing tomatoes and moving them. But development isn't something that you can always plan out a long way in the future. And that's why I say you take one step, you see what happens. So step one, here's a tree nursery. Oh, pretty good. Oh, the women get along in this nursery. Oh, well, what's another problem? Oh, storing peanuts is a problem. Oh, well, let's solve that problem. Oh, we could grow tomatoes. Oh, well, let's do that. And so you kind of see this step by step, sometimes unplanned, but you're talking to people, you're listening to people, you're taking advantage of opportunities. What was the cost input in that? virtually nothing. It was just, you know, a Peace Corps volunteer who had her wits about her and was in a community that was fairly well organized. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's talk about cooperatives. You said, one of the things you said was this was one of the few examples where a cooperative actually worked. Uh, what are some of the dynamics going on with cooperatives? Obviously, economically, it makes sense for these smallholder farmers to put all their uh, goods together and sell them, but it seems like something that's very difficult for people to be able to do. It, it can be, and in part, you know, cooperatives work when it makes sense to be cooperative, but sometimes cooperatives, community nurseries are a good example of trying to, they're not necessarily called a cooperative always, but in essence, they're set up to function like a cooperative, even if they're not legally constructed as one. Um, but that's not how we do nurseries in the United States, you know. It wouldn't make any sense, you know. It's better to have a one person grow stuff in a nursery and sell it to everybody else who wants it. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of works against human nature in that case. So are there producer cooperatives that work very well? And the answer is yes, there are huge producer cooperatives in the United States that work very well. And, um, but it takes some level of trust and a small community among the community members. Not all communities have that. You know, I was talking about Ghana. Well, there are cases in Ghana where they get along well, and there are other cases in Ghana where, just like in the U.S., you have some small towns where different factions have argued for years and years, and they have a very hard time cooperating and making their little town work. Well, the same thing it can be happening in any little village in any little country in the world. And so when that happens, you don't have the social setting right. And then the question is, is there an advantage? And so the case of marketing, often there is, because it gives you the ability to move things in larger quantities. It gives you often a chance to better bargain for prices that you might not have. Um, uh, 
Sometimes cooperatives don't work because the group that the cooperative is bargaining with is actually so large that it, that the you still haven't hit the scale that you need mm -hmm. in order to be able to effectively bargain with that larger unit. Mm -hmm. There are resin cooperatives in Honduras that have been something like that. The cooperatives still exist fairly well because of they help secure tenure for the farmers is a big advantage. Um, but their marketing has been kind of hit or miss just because there are so few places to market pine resin in the country. Look forward over the next 10 to 15 years. What will be the major trends in agricultural economies in the developing world? I think you're going to see some of the things we've already talked about where um, there still will be problems with tenure and I, they'll, they will become greater probably rather than less of a problem partly because people move. Migration will continue probably to accelerate. As people move they have less claim to insecure tenure anyhow. Um, and you'll see groups from other from other areas who want to buy into purchase land. I think you'll continue to see land consolidation in much of the tropics. It's um, where as people migrate out and they stop farming, even if they don't sell the land off or even if they don't have legal ownership so they could sell it off, they will rent their rights. And so particular farmers, even if they don't own extensive holdings, will go from owning two hectares to five hectares to 20 hectares, effectively owning it. And in a way, that's easier to work with farmers. There's fewer of them. They have more interest in what they're doing. So that's a trend, I think, all over the world is agricultural consolidation. And that might be the biggest one that we'll see. Migration is a big one. Communication, both as we've talked about with the cell phones, but also this knowledge as people move around the globe and information flows back and forth. Um, you know, we were talking with a guy who, is, who does some work in forestry here from India. His father was a small farmer in India, right, when he was young. So that means you've got, in just one generation, somebody who is an Indian farmer, small farmer, smallholder, and his son has a Ph.D. in that he acquired in Canada, he now works in the United States. There's a lot of information flow that can go back and forth in just that one generation. So do you think that this is going to be a positive thing that helps people build these sustainable low-input systems that you're talking about? I mean, how do you see that playing out actually in, in the field of agriculture? Well, in agriculture, I think it may work against some of those low-input systems. There'll be a space in there where it actually helps it. Um, but I, th I think the problem that you, you see in, is that there, we're going to be moving a lot of our problems that we currently have in the countryside into big cities, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have these, we, we see it already, these huge cities with slums that go on forever. You can't deal with the human waste. You can't deal with refuse. You can't deal with transportation. You, you can't deal with health problems in, in big cities. And um, in addition to that, you're going to have to feed those people. And so even though we see, that's probably another big trend which we haven't mentioned is that in many, many countries the birth rate is declining and far more rapidly than people ever anticipated, um, which means that they, we won't have that huge demand that we projected out there, but we're still going to have more demand for food than we do now for two reasons. One, more people. Two, more income. And as you have more income, it switches your food demands to some extent. Um, so that'll, that'll put more pressure on agriculture. And when that happens, you tend to shift away from sustainable systems to systems 
that meet the needs here and now, sacrificing things out in the future. There's a lot of compelling evidence that our uh, world hydrocarbon production has peaked or is about to peak. Um, where do you fall in on this debate and how do you think it's going to affect agricultural production? Oh, that's a, not my area of expertise at all. Okay, but but there's, I mean, a strong need for fossil fuels, so let's assume that, you know, I, that hydrocarbons are going to become scarcer, there's going to be more demand for them, and they're going to become more expensive. I mean, that's something I think that people, uh, most people accept. How is this going to affect uh, many of these third world farmers? Well, if you're a low input farmer, it won't affect you as much. Um, you know, the place it may affect you in the tropics is that a lot of this high hydrocarbon farming has shifted into those large farms in the tropics. The big soy fields of Brazil, for example, are highly mechanized. Um, and nitrogen fertilizer, although it may not necessarily be hydrocarbon fuel that generates it, it's making nitrogen fertilizer is fairly energy intensive, um, no matter where the energy comes from. And so that'll be, you know, that's a, that'll be another problem. Whenever you ratchet up energy prices due to scarcity, it means there's a problem in transportation, mm -hmm. both goods to the farm inputs and then whatever you're selling from the farm. You know, so prices will go up. Um, I mean, I'm an economist, so I tend to believe that prices eventually will force you to different energy systems and different systems. Right, and these low input systems are much more resilient to these types of fluctuations in prices, whether it be in fuels or uh, cotton. Right. They're, yeah, they are. They're, they're just what they say. They're low input, and that means low input in terms of fertilizer, low input in terms of energy. You know, you might be using farm animals, and so we talk about these systems and the cycles they have within them. So if you're a small farm, um, small farmer and you're using oxen to plow or you're using um, you know, something very low input like that, your oxen is also generating manure, you're feeding your oxen off of farm residue, mm -hmm. you know, using other farm residue to feed pigs. And so the system can be pretty tightly bound within itself. And the thing is that whenever you're producing those extras for cash, there's something flowing out of the system. And so you've got to have something flow into the system to kind of balance that out. And that's why we say, well, it's low input. Um, but it, there's got to be some input into the system if you're going to pay for farm. From your farm earnings, you're going to pay for school fees and those kinds of things for your household. What about in the United States? Do you see that we will start to move towards mixed systems here, or will we continue with this system of fossil fuel agriculture and monoculture? Boy, once again, you're kind of talking out of my area of expertise. I don't, I don't uh, think too much about ag American agriculture other than sometimes contrasting it with what goes on in the tropics. But, um, you know, some of our large systems for grain and all, it's hard, hard to see how you could ever shift back to a different system. I mean, I think you'll just see prices go up on, mm -hmm. on those grains, and we see that now, even with a switch to biofuels, right? All of a sudden, there's more demand for the same fuel. Prices rise, and so who gets hurt by it? It's sometimes the urban poor in developing countries as the price effects trickle all the way down. So we might be somewhat insulated in the U.S. from some of those price increases. Sure, we see them in the grocery store, and we complain about them, but that doesn't mean we go, most of us go hungry at night because of it. Whereas in a developing country, if those price changes trickle all the way back to their country, they will. 
um, you will see that as a problem. But there are other things that we do here, um, some kinds of probably uh, some livestock, not all, um, and uh, vegetable food farming, um, which, yeah, they use a lot of hydrocarbons now, but they could be in a position to shift back with maybe less pain than some other types of agriculture. Okay. Um, is there anything, any key principles or themes that we didn't touch on that you think that uh, people should be made aware of? I think the biggest thing is that, you know, a lot of times people talk about smallholder agriculture, and we talked about beets. So this isn't a new idea that in terms of talking about uh, how farming might change or what's going on. But I think if there's a take-home message, it's that these smallholder farmers, um, you know, they've always been part of a larger system out there, but they're becoming more and more integrated into that large system through where they sell, what their mm -hmm. cash cri crops might be, um, how they gain information, um, migration, all these things that even small holders in very remote areas are becoming more and more linked into the world and feel the effects of the world. So is this a positive thing? Is it a negative thing? Is it kind of a neutral thing? I mean, is it going to help them to, to become more sustainable and, and maybe break out of the cycle of poverty? I think for some farmers it will. Remember, one of the things I said is that, you know, just like in the United States, you're going to see many people move to big cities. I mean, I think, you know, you saw that in Bolivia, sure. right, where farmers, um, you know, abandon the farm for one reason or another. It could, there are a whole host of reasons. Sometimes they had a reasonably good farm, but life seemed like it might be better in the big city, mm -hmm. so they moved on. And you're, as you see that, you've got to just think that everybody's reasonably smart, and they're making decisions that are best for them and for their families and their households. And what does that mean? That means that it, it's probably for the better for them, or they wouldn't make that choice. Do some of them make bad choices sometimes? Yes. Is it always good for everybody? No. But on whole, probably it opens up more opportunities for people. There's a, very, there's a program in India, and what are they doing? They're teaching farmers how to be taxi drivers. Right? Why? They just they can't make a living on their small holdings anymore. It's better for them to pack up, go to the big city, and work there. Who, who knows if they're really going to be better off? But it's at least this rational understanding that, you know, farms have to grow a little bit, even though these low-impact system, in, you know, the low-input systems are ones where it's easier for you to be successful if you have 10 or 20 hectares rather than just two. Sure. Well, it seems like with that take-home message that you just gave us, um, that would be a powerful message to take to some of these farmers just to make them aware of this phenomenon that they're enmeshed in but maybe are not completely aware of and then just kind of help them to think about it so that they can find ways to seek out opportunities as these changes uh, continue to happen. Well, we started with the idea of the Peace Corps programs. And one of the things that Peace Corps does is that it puts Americans into small rural communities all over the world. And so they're, they're there for two years, and we talked about building up trust. And how do you build up trust? You, well, you sit around in your village, under the tree, on the porch, in front of the small store, mm -hmm. and you talk to people. And it doesn't mean that you sit down there with this agenda of telling people, oh, as farm size in our community goes from five hectares to ten hectares per household, here's will happen, but you talk about things, and new ideas come up from sharing ideas with other people. And I think 
you know, farmers, I think they see some of these things themselves anyhow. Um, they don't always need a professor to sit sure. down and give them a lecture on this. Okay. Well, on that note, Blair Orr, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and ideas. Thanks for having me. That concludes my interview with Dr. Blair Orr of Michigan Technological University. Now, Dr. Orr was actually my advisor as a, a master's student. I was a student in the Master's International Program, and I must say that he is a person that I personally admire very much, uh, not only for his knowledge, but also for his commitment to his students and for his commitment to helping people in third world countries through his Master's International Program and through his tireless support to Peace Corps volunteers that are in the field um, or that are preparing to go out into the field. I will link to the website for the Master's International Program at Michigan Technological University on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. And for those of you who are in a uh, situation in your life where you are interested in participating in a program like this and meet the qualifications, I would strongly encourage you to consider uh, applying because I personally found uh, this program very enriching in many ways, and um, I think that many of you out there could benefit from a program like this as well. So I would encourage you at least to check it out, and if it seems like something uh, that's right for you, definitely get in touch with Dr. Orr because uh, he is a, just a great source of information and uh, he will help you through every step of the process. So this is uh, an episode that is dedicated to Blair Orr for all the work that he does. I'd like to thank him personally. Uh, he's someone that I admire very much. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>